This is an audio-only version of the video series broadcast on YouTube. If you want to experience Me, Myself, and Die as it was originally intended, search for Me, Myself, and Die on YouTube, Facebook, or go to www.memyselfanddie.com. All of the show's playlists, social media links, and other material can be found there. And now, Me, Myself, and Die. Well, welcome back once again to Me, Myself, and I. I am, as always, your intrepid GM host and player, Trevor DeVal. Thank you so much for joining me here today. As always, if you do enjoy the content, please do help us out by subscribing and liking the video or joining us on Patreon, or perhaps subscribing as a member of this channel, which is a new option, or buying some merchandise from our store, or having a look at the drive through RPG links below where you can buy all of the stuff I use in the show, and that helps the channel as well. Here we are. Last time, Nicola lost his crew because they didn't want to be on the same ship as Edbert. Edbert tried to enlist the help of Uraz Vath, but he couldn't help him. So, Edbert turned to the goddess Devona, with whom he had had a prior relationship throughout the course of this series. And she agreed to get the now crewless drunken ghoul to the Dead Man's Reef in exchange for Edbert's service. But Nicola, because of a random event, stepped in to take the burden upon himself instead. They arrived at the Dead Man's Reef only to find that the Inquisitor's Leap had beat them there. They went out to the island, there, they saw Octavius, Vale, and Thrag all waiting. And after a brief exchange, Edbert assumed that this in fact was his trial. He swam over to the island, but was immediately attacked by the honorless dog Octavius. This not only shocked Sherilyn, but it also shocked Vale so much, because remember, Vale wanted to keep Edbert alive because she was afraid that if he died, Sherilyn's spirit, who she was trying to restore, might go away, and she couldn't have that. So she shot Octavius in the back and killed him with a poison bolt, and that is where we left off. Now, there is a thread. It's not really a new thread, it's a modified thread, because one of our threads before was Vale is coming for Edbert. Well, now it looks like Vale is going with Edbert to the Soul Cage. What will she intend to do there? Only the dice will tell. Let's adjust that. And the chaos factor goes up to seven. Let us see if the scene, which is picking up right where we left off, everybody on the island over the dead body of Octavius, let us see if the scene is interrupted or altered. It is not with a roll of a ten, which means the scene progresses uninterrupted. First of all, let me tell you that I reached out to my patrons, thank you so much, those of you who responded, to ask them what they thought the area surrounding the Soul Cage might actually look like. And you guys came up with some fantastic stuff. So I will be using all kinds of your stuff today, as those of you in the know will recognize, no doubt. But I just wanted to give a big thank you to these folks right here who were generous enough with their time and creative energy to supply some, some very interesting ideas to the show. Thank you so much, all of you. I think that the soul cage itself is located somewhere in the water. We know that. But I have an idea, based on some of the patrons' suggestions as well as my own, that the soul cage itself exists in kind of an extra-dimensional space. It is, in fact, under the water. But you can't get there by swimming. No, you have to get there some other way. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the soul cage. But we sort of know it has something to do with the souls of the dead sailors or something like that. So I think it's possible that as Octavius's body hits the ground, his departing spirit, which of course Vale can see because she is a member of the Order of Vale and Thrag can both see this, this sort of wispy, 
mottled black and white spirit that leaves Octavius's body, I think that his death right here, so close to the soul cage, triggers an opening to the soul cage cavern, we'll call it. Is that the case? I am gonna call that very likely. Very likely is a 72, which is a yes. So as his body hits the deck here, from in between these trees, there suddenly is a disturbance, a disturbance in the long grasses at the base of these palm trees. The disturbance is like a wind blowing through them. And as everyone turns their gaze upon this, they can see that the wind is forming like a small vortex, almost like a, a whirlpool in the grass. And very soon, very, right in front of their eyes, that vortex of grass, there's a, there's a flash of sort of whitish blue light from it and in fact what they're looking upon is this weird kind of energy whirlpool that seems to be drawing things into it but what it is truly drawing into it is this fleeting spirit from Octavius. Octavius's spirit is unable to resist this pull and he goes spinning down. Now we have another spirit to contend with. That of course is Sherilyn. With a horrified look on her face she realizes what's happening and I think two things happen. One, she realizes what's happening but also she starts to be weakened because as she gets closer to the soul cage she is going to become weaker and weaker and weaker because she is a spirit and she's going to be in the presence of something whose, whose business is spirit. So. Here's the thing, as she starts to be pulled inexorably towards the soul cage, I think it's 50-50 at this point. She gets sucked in, is it possible? And oh, the answer is no. And I think it's because Vale, using whatever powers granted to her by membership in the Order of the Purifying Flame, is able to basically stabilize her spirit in place to prevent her from being pulled into this vortex. But at that moment, Nicola and Wyndham come splashing up. Edbert sees this vortex. Edbert from season one, if you recall has some history with magic. He has some history with necromancy. He has some history with all of this stuff. Because of that, I think he recognizes what this is, that this in fact could be the entrance to the soul cage. I'm gonna give him a lore undead, but because of his background, I'm gonna give him a plus three. He's rolling on sevens. Ooh, seven! He knows exactly what that is. He sees that vortex. He sees Vale basically doing her best to hold back Sherilyn. He shouts to Nicola behind him. That's it! That's the opening! We gotta go now! It's gonna close up! Nicola and Wyndham run to the vortex. Edward sees Vale desperate to hold back Sherilyn. If you don't come with us now, your chances of ever getting her back are nothing. Do you understand? Let her go and let's get in there before it's too late. She knows he's telling the truth. Her whole thing has been trying to get Sherilyn back. So she releases Sherilyn. Sherilyn goes howling into the vortex. And right after that, Nicola, Wyndham, the Guardian, Thrag, and Edbert, followed immediately by Vale, all leap into the vortex one at a time, where they go howling and twisting down this ethereal blue and white tunnel. It's like a tunnel through the ocean, but there's also a sense of weightlessness to it as well, as though they're no longer in their world, until BAM! They emerge into the mouth of what appears to be an undersea cave. But it's very strange because on either side of them, they can see the ocean. It's almost as though the walls of the cave are weirdly transparent or translucent. There's no explanation for why the water isn't coming, cascading in and drowning them all. There, there must be some power holding back the sea, but it is very disconcerting. Here's my question. Did everybody make it? It's likely that this vortex only stayed open so long and that some of them did not make it. Did everybody make it? 76. The answer is no on 76. So, you know what? I'm just gonna executive decision it here. I think the people that made it, the only ones that actually got in the vortex in time and got deposited in this area are Edbert, Nicola, 
and Veil. The three of them all emerge into different openings, different mouths, different tunnel mouths of a cavern. These tunnels lead into a much larger cavern. The tunnels that each one of them are in are all lined with skeletons. There's in, in the, the tunnel that Edbert's in, there's a skeleton clearly dressed in, in the rotting remains of a pirate garb. There's a, a skeleton basically lying on the ground with its hand, its skeletal finger pointing straight ahead. These are clearly the remains of people who have come before and failed in their attempts to retrieve the Soul Cage. Vale emerges there, Nicola emerges here, Edbert emerges here to find Sherilyn already there. Now, Sherilyn is in a state that Edbert has never seen her in before. She is clearly visibly weakened by this. She is, it's like her strength and power is being pulled from her, drawn towards the main chamber. Now, the, the walls are translucent. They can see the dimly lit ocean beyond. As they look into this main cavern, they can see that they are separated from the main cavern. A gulf of darkness separates these three openings, these tunnel openings. But in this main cavern over here, the sides of the cavern are lined from the floor all the way up into the impenetrable darkness of whatever ceiling there might be, lined with bird cages, lobster traps, even man-sized individual cells. Just a hodgepodge, just one after another. There must be thousands of cages in here. And from all of these surrounding cages, Edbert can now see glimpses of flickering light. In indistinguishable forms, some of them humanoid, but just general weird flickering lights in a lot of these cages. And at one point, he looks at one of the cages nearest to the entrance here. And he knows, he knows just by looking at this thing, that that is the soul of Octavius, trapped in one of these cages now. However, in the middle of the cavern is what really draws Edbert's eyes because in the center of the chamber is a pile of human bones and sitting on top of that pile is an object. An object about yay big. It is, or looks to be, a ship's lantern. On either side of the pile of bones that this lantern rests upon, Edbert can see stacks and stacks of barrels, wine casks. They rise up into the vast gulf of darkness overhead. He looks over and he can see Vale at the entrance of this other corridor. And Nicola, who emerges from the darkness here. But as they're taking this all in, from behind the pedestal emerges a figure. The figure is that of a small child, a small girl. She's dressed in tattered rags, basically her hair unkempt and dirty, but her eyes, her eyes have the piercing quality of eternity in them. It is unnerving to say the least. But what is far more unnerving is when this small girl suddenly shifts form before Edbert's very eyes, where there was once a young girl standing there, there is suddenly, and without any explanation, an old man Fisherman, sailor perhaps, hard to tell. Again, dressed in tattered robes, looks like he's been on the sea for a lifetime. Got craggy, weathered, beaten features, but those eyes, still the same, piercing blue-green eyes, looking directly at Edward. And then the figure changes again. This is all happening as naturally and as gradually as the, as the water that washes up and down the sands. Where there was once an old man, now there is a weeping young woman dressed in commoner's robes, 
but with those piercing blue eyes, this time tears cascading from the eyes. And Edward knows just by looking at her that this woman somehow is crying the tears of all the wives and all the sisters and all the daughters in all the world who ever lost mariners to the sea. These are the tears being shed all throughout the world for all of the lost brothers and sons and husbands. He just knows this looking at her. And again, those piercing blue-green eyes, even though the tears fall from them. And again, the woman's form changes back to the child. Constantly, constantly, constantly the form is changing, but the eyes are always the same. And then the second disturbing thing happens. The child, the little girl, speaks in a voice that Edbert immediately recognizes. Welcome to the soul cage chamber, my dear Edbert. Devona, what are you doing here? Surely you did not think that there could be anything that resides within my realm that I do not know of. You knew it was here the whole time. You played me. You are a most amusing toy, Edward. How I have enjoyed your memories, your struggles, and now, uh, perhaps, your very soul. See, she turns back and gestures to this lantern on this pile of bones. Inside the lantern is a scintillating light, very, very hard to look at directly. Residing within is the last to challenge the soul cage. This is the soul of Captain Campion, the captain of the vessel you might know as the Crimson Viper. Campion, before his mad quest for the soul cage, was once a simple fisherman who spent long years working his way up until finally he ascended to the captaincy of the Crimson Viper. Campion, you see, wanted dominion over the souls of the dead. But instead, he found his own soul trapped inside the cage. The weeping wife says to them in Devona's voice, In order to dominate the soul cage, and she looks at Edward, but she also looks over at Vale and over at Nicola, almost as though issuing a challenge to them. You would have to contend with the one who resides within. If you succeed, the power to transform reality will be at your fingertips. But if you fail, your soul will be trapped inside the soul cage for eternity. The three of them all exchange a look from across the gulfs that are separating them. I think we all get it, Devona. But how exactly are we supposed to contend with the spirit inside that lantern, hmm? Oh, it is very simple, comes Devona's voice from the old grizzled fisherman now in front of him. The old fisherman gestures to the casks and barrels surrounding the pile of, of bones. I have here casks of most magical wine, distilled from the blood of every sailor who ever drowned in the sea. It is of the most exquisite vintage. All you must do is partake of the wine, and it will draw you in to the reality that the soul cage will provide for you. Now, I have a question, a question that a lot of you have been asking in the comments and on Discord, and it's a very, very good question. That question is, can the soul cage be used more than once? Or is the soul cage down to its last possible use? As in all things in this show, we are gonna leave it to the dice. Is the soul cage on its last use? 
50-50, but chaos factor seven means that is a 75% chance of a yes. 45 is a yes. The child who has returned once again gestures to the lantern behind her. Ah, but see, appearing hovering in the air right before the soul cage is a cup filled with wine. There is only one cup of the wine left. Only enough for one of you to partake. And a hideous smile, very unchildlike, comes across the little girl's face. And at that moment, Edbert, Nicola, and Vale all share looks as they realize that only one of them is going to get the opportunity to try and master the soul cage. Well, like lightning, I think all three of them immediately leap the chasm or try to, to get to the chamber in time. Here's what we're gonna do. Muscle rolls. The highest success gets there first. So let's start with Vale. She's, she's very nimble. So she's gonna use that instead. We're gonna call this, we're gonna call this a seven for her. Oh, well she succeeds very well. She gets a six. What about Edbert? He succeeds, but he succeeds on a three, which means Vale gets there first. Edbert comes right after her. What about Nicola? Nicola's also rolling on six. He rolls a five, which means he gets there right after Nicola, but before Edbert. So Edbert is actually the last one to arrive. I think Sherilyn, is, her spirit is pulled along with Edbert as well. So because Vale is the first one there, she immediately begins to beeline for this cup hovering in the air. Nicola was next before Edbert, so I think Nicola might get a chance to do something. He might get a chance to stop her. I think... Mm, I think he tries to like to, to run into her instead of making a beeline for the wine cup hovering in the air He changes his trajectory to try and intercept Vale and grab her. Does he do it? Her dodge is pretty awesome. Her dodge is like uh, dodges an eight. Oh, she is able to dodge at four. Nicola is basically now rolling at twos. He's got to get twos. He's got to get twos. Oh, there it is. Boom, right there. He is able to intercept Vale and tackle her to the ground right in front of the hovering cup. He shouts over to Edbert. Go, Edbert. Do as you must. Ah! Edbert sees his opportunity and races towards the cup. Edbert rushes up to the cup and snatches it out of midair and immediately downs the wine. He feels his entire person being drawn into the lantern. It is a very, very strange sensation. His, his body and soul somehow are being pulled into the lantern itself and his vision is suddenly clouded with snow as he finds himself at the base of a snowy mountain in the middle of a howling snowstorm and he knows immediately where this is. Beside him he can see Sherilyn, Sherilyn who is with him even now but but Sherilyn who is still in spirit form completely beaten down, utterly powerless. It, it's as though she is struggling to even keep herself upright but she is just weakened but through through exhausted eyes, she looks at her surroundings with Edbert and she too understands where they are because as they look into this valley, they can see desperately trying to scramble up a slope of snow, but, but finding no purchase is Edbert from years 
past and up on a ridge underneath a massive outcropping of rock and ice and snow is Sherilyn, who is even now trying to do magical battle with a necromancer, the necromancer that she has come to hunt. See, season one. From outside this strange transformed reality, Vale and Nicola can see this happening. As they struggle around, they kind of they kind of stop for a second as they realize they can see the strange snow-covered valley. They can see Edbert and Sherilyn in, in, engaged in what's going on there. Edbert somehow knows that he can't possibly be here. He can't possibly be here, but there he is. He can see himself in the distance, trying to get up the side of the slope. And everything in that moment comes flooding back to him. This is the moment that in which he caused Sherilyn's death. This is the moment for which Sherilyn has blamed him and has been haunting him all these years. This is the moment where he now finds himself inexplicably back in this snow-covered valley, and as he's thinking that, as he's realizing what's going on, there is a blustering of the snow and a, a coalescing of a form that emerges from the snow. The, the, the form is not much at all. It seems some, some sort of like amorphous, vaguely humanoid shape. It slowly glides towards Edbert, and as it gets closer, Edbert begins to make out certain details of it. It seems to be an older man, but perhaps a pirate captain of some sort. He has burning red eyes, and there is a strange sense of heat coming off of him. It's very, very strange. But as he gets closer, he begins to coalesce into something a little more solid, and sure enough, he can see the form of what Edbert now assumes to be the spirit, the soul of Captain Campion, the captain of the Crimson Viper, the ghost ship. The, the spirit, the soul of Captain Campion looks at Edbert, looks around, almost realizing himself where he is now. And a, a, a mirthless smile comes across his face. So, the prison that the soul cage has created for you is the past. There is no escaping it, Edbert. The past is your prison, and here you will remain. But I... I shall go free! And at that moment, the spirit transforms itself into this hellish, burning, massive thing. There it is, rising up from the snow with a burning blade in its hand. The figure comes striding with its burning blade towards Edbert, and the fight is on. Sherilyn, for her part, over here, she sees Edbert pull his sword, desperately trying to defend himself against this monstrosity, and her eyes go back and forth between the real Edbert and the Edbert of the past, who even now is trying to scramble up the slopes once again to get to Sherilyn to try and save her, and she sees right now that this, this moment, this is Edbert's trial. This is his opportunity to prove himself at last. And who better, who better to stand in judgment over Edbert than Sherilyn herself? Now, Edbert has been wounded, and those wounds manifest here in the Soul Cage. He is down to one hit point, so any further damage he takes will very, will very, very likely start to impede him as he'll start to take penalties. Let's get some stats for this thing. His timing is going to be fast. It's going to be plus five. Strike. Uh, 12, but here's the thing, if he does hit Edward, it's going to do an additional two points of fire damage. His feint is going to be 7, I think his parry will be 8, his withstand injury is 10. Here we go, let's make the timing roll, so Campion is on 5, he'll be on 13, 
Edbert's on three, and he'll be on six, which means he has to declare first. Well, he sees this figure coming in, sweeping down with its flaming sword. He's gonna parry and try and strike back. So, the figure sees this, it declares next. I think it's going to faint and strike. So, here we go, Edbert's parry is seven. He's at no minuses yet. He does not. The faint of the creature. The faint is coming in at seven. Does he faint? He does, which means, oh my God, he gets a bonus of his faint stat. He's striking at like 19. Edbert just completely fumbles his, his parry as this flaming blade comes in and then at the last second spins around to take him from the other side. Here we go. The uh, Captain Campion goes first. He's coming in now at 19. And he rolls a five, that isn't terrible. So he's going to hit Edward with that flaming damage. It's gonna be plus two damage, don't forget. Edward does a withstand injury, he's got eights. He's gonna withstand four of it, which means that uh, total damage of seven minus four is going to be three damage. That's bad. Edward now is at minus two as the flaming blade sears into Edward's flesh. Ah, but he's able to strike back with his minus two. Edward's going to be striking now at 10. Come on, Edward, he comes in at eight, which is a pretty solid hit on this thing. This thing's withstand injury is 10. Does it withstand the injury? Two, six damage to this thing. Unbelievable. Edbert crying out in pain. The, the flames burning his left shoulder drives his blade into the spectral figure, into the left leg, stabbing it. It roars in supernatural pain. Meanwhile, outside the lantern, while struggling, both Nicola and Vale kind of stop. They're struggling for a second as they can see in the lantern. They can see what's going on. They can see Edbert and Sherilyn and this and this Captain Campion, this mad spirit, in locked in a deadly battle in this snow-covered valley. And at that moment, Sherilyn, seeing this happen, her eyes going back and forth between the two Edberts, the Edbert here and the Edbert trying to scramble up the rock to come to her aid as he did in life all those years ago. Round two! Here we go. Edbert is at minus two to everything he does. Captain Campion is at plus five. He suffers no penalties. He is going to be at six. That's very good. That's very, very good. Edbert, normally timing is on plus three. Now he's rolling plus one. He's going to be at nine, which is going to put him ahead, which is great. So that means that Captain Campion must declare first. What's he do? Let's see. Let's go to our Iron Sworn Lodestar thing here and see what the enemies do. Combat action, just to keep it interesting. Boom, zero two. Compel a surrender. Oh, that's great. So the spirit still reeling from its wound nonetheless rises up and points its flaming sword at Edbert and says, All of your past failures live in this place, Edbert, and you will contend with them forever. And at that moment, his form begins to change, change into a familiar shape. Only this familiar shape has burning red eyes and a flaming saber. That shape is the shape of Carlos. This isn't actually Carlos. This is the spirit basically reading Edbert's mind and transforming into Carlos. Edbert is shocked and taken aback by this. He has got to do a withstand magic. His withstand magic is seven. If he fails at this, he's basically stunned and the spirit will get a free attack on him. Does he do it? He doesn't, but just barely, just barely, but he's able to snap himself out of it and declare an attack and he drives home his blade in front of the creature. Frankly, Captain Campion in uh, Carlos's form didn't expect such a strength of will from this, so he is unprepared with any parries. So this is a straight up attack coming in from Edbert. He is rolling at tens because normally it's 12, but it's minus two for his wounds. And he comes in with an eight, which is another great hit. Withstand injury of 
10 for Captain Campion. Does he resist it? Oh, he resists all the damage. Nothing is done. Edbert's blade sinks into Carlos's side. Carlos's side, but... Carlos looks at the blade, laughs it off, and then recovers his blade for another attack and another round. Meanwhile, in the distance, Edbert can see that Sherilyn is, is in grave danger, and he cries out at the top of his lungs, Sherilyn, behind you! Watch out! And his voice echoes through the valley. Echoes, echoes, echoes. Sherilyn down here, seeing, feeling the echo going through the valley, seeing Edward's attempt to try and save her life, but seeing that his, his voice is now causing a, a dislodging of the, the snow and rock directly above her and the necromancer with whom she's fighting. Meanwhile, we go into round three, the timing roll. Campy's at plus five, so he's going to be, oh, again, he's going to be on six again. That is fantastic. Edbert, uh, his timing is down to plus one now. He's going to be on eight, which still puts him ahead. Campion in, in Carlos's form is raging. Still with the flaming blade, he is going to strike twice and parry just in case. Edbert sees this. Edbert is going to parry, faint, and strike. The sudden hit from Edbert has goaded Campion into a, into a flurry of attacks instead of concentrating on defense so much. So the parries. Let's do Campion's parry first. His parry's at eight. He does not parry! His parry is useless, which is excellent. Edbert, as well, is doing three actions, so that's minus two, minus four because of his penalties. His parry's only at three. Does he do it? Oh, that's a two! That's a two! So, okay, great. So, Campion is going to be minus two to strike because of Edbert's parry. Uh, Edbert's faint. Does he do his faint? His faint is also at three. Ooh, that's not great. But he's able to do it, which means... Oh, this is awesome, which means he's able to aid his faint score of seven to his strike. So, Edbert acts first after the parry and the feints have come in. Edbert's rolling 13. This is a really good chance. He gets a 9. Withstand injury of 10 from Campion. He rolled 2, which means 7. 7? Oh, this is awesome. Edbert's blade drives into Carlos's chest, <laughs> doing 7 damage, which brings him down to minus 3. Campion roars with pain. Oh. Ooh, but it is not over yet. They're both circling each other. Meanwhile, up the slope, the rumbling of the stone and the rumbling of the snow begins to intensify. And at that moment, Edbert on the slope realizes what he's done in trying to save Sherilyn's life. He has caused this avalanche. Sherilyn, over there, fighting the necromancer, looks up, sees her fate about to be coming crashing down on her. And so too does does this Sherilyn see for the first time what really happened there? Fourth round, we go into initiatives. All right, the timing of Campion is now at plus two because of his wounds. Oh, he's at 12. That's bad. Edbert is still at plus one, and he's at uh, eight. So Campion goes first, which means Edbert must declare first. He's going to look like he parries, but then he faints and strikes. Campion sees the faint. I think he's going to parry once and strike once. First of all, let us see what Campion's parry is. This is going to be a minus three. His parry is normally eight, so it's going to be fives. He does not parry. Edward's doing his feint at... Ooh, seven uh, minus is four. And, oh, he does it! He does it! He does it! He does it! Okay, so he adds his seven to a strike of 12, which is 19, minus three for all the penalties, which is going to be 13. 13? No, what am I saying? 16. <laughs> 16, which is huge. Campion goes first. Campion, with his flaming blade in the form of Carlos, slices down, and he's going to be striking at nine. 
Does he hit Edbert? He hits him for two, but Edbert gets a withstand injury of eight. And he will soak up all the damage. It's actually four because of the flame, but six is enough. Edward is able to soak that damage before he drives his blade with a score of 16 into it. He does nine. That is an excellent, but the thing still has a withstand injury of 10. It withstands six of it. It takes three. It's down to minus six. It is not out of the fight just yet, but it is reeling from multiple wounds, and we go into the next round. Over here in the mountains, Sherilyn, the Sherilyn of the past, looks up as the rocks come cascading down, smashing into the necromancer and carrying him off down into the bottom of the valley to his death as she looks up and looks back at Edbert, their eyes locked as a huge boulder comes down and smashes into Sherilyn, carrying her down the side of the mountain as the real Sherilyn, the spiritual, the, the, the spirit version of Sherilyn, looks upon this and looks at Edbert in the distance. Edbert, who is crying out in horror, in terror, in regret, as the cascading avalanche also bears him down as he goes rolling ass overhead down into the snow. Meanwhile, the real fight, the trial of Edbert, it seems, continues. We go into our next round, be in the fight here between Carlos, heavily wounded Captain Campion with his flaming blood, his eyes on fire now, literal flames coming out of his eye sockets. Timing now, Campion's at minus one. He rolls a four. Edbert is still somehow at plus one. He rolls at, oh no, he rolls a 12, which means he's last, which means he has to declare first. He's done great in this fight. I don't think he's going to attempt it again, though, for this round. I think he's going to parry and just do a strike because he knows that Captain Campion, in the form of Carlos, is still a very formidable enemy. Campion is going to seize his advantage. He's going to parry and strike. So actually, let's do Edward's parry first. So his parry is at four, and he does not parry, unfortunately. Campion, his parry coming in at minus six, minus seven. It's only ones. Is it ones? He also does not parry, but he acts First, his strength is penalized by minus seven, which means it is rolling on a five against Edbert. Does he hit him? He hits for five. Does Edbert withstand any of it? It's actually seven because of the flame damage. Does withstand injury? He, Edbert's got an eight. He rolls a seven. Okay, a seven plus seven. <laughs> he soaks up all the damage. He takes no damage from it. The, the, the searing blade comes slashing down at Edbert, but just in time, Edbert kind of parries it aside a little bit. It knocks off of his left arm and into the snow. There's a massive hiss as the snow melts immediately from the, the, the burning blade. And that gives Edward his shot at driving his blade in at a total of minus three because the multi-action penalty on his wounds coming in. 12 minus three is going to be nine. Here we go. Does he get Carlos? He gets with a nine. It's the best he can possibly do. He can still withstand injury. He's got a withstand injury of 10. Very, very tough. He does eight, which means it's only one damage. He's down to minus seven. Here's the thing. Campion is wounded. His hand is slashed up. He cannot faint anymore. He can barely parry. In fact, if he does a multi-action pedal, he won't be able to parry at all. He is struggling. His timing is at minus two now. He's at seven. Edbert is rolling at plus one still. And he's rolling at 11. Edbert's gonna go first, which means Campion must declare first. He can't parry and strike because he's too wounded. So he 
sizes Edward up and swings for just a single strike this time. He is, oh, he is ebbing, ebbing, ebbing. Edward sees this coming in. He takes his opportunity to parry it, to faint, and to strike, because why not? Edbert's parry is total a minus four, so he's rolling on threes. Does he do it? He does not parry. He's rolling on threes for his feint. Does he do it? He does not feint either. It is just a straight up strike. But he goes first because he's got the initiative. His parry failed. His feint failed. Apparently, Captain Campion is still wily and sees the feint coming and is able to move his sword in the way to thwart Edbert's feint attempt. But the strike comes in. He is rolling on eights. Six. Okay. The withstand injury of ten. Does he do? Oh my god. He withstands none of it, which means that is six more damage, which puts him to minus 13. His strike is 12. And as soon as you get to minus 12, that is it. Edward's sword comes crashing down on Carlos's head. He cries in pain and drops to the ground. Edward, breathing heavily, looking over him. Even as he looks at Carlos, Carlos looks up at him and begins to transform, not into the huge creature that he fought and not even to the disembodied spirit that Edward fought, but instead into a shriveled old man dressed in a captain's uniform. He looks like someone's grandpa, but he is bleeding from multiple wounds. He looks up at Edbert, the flame in his eyes slowly going out, and he says, Free. I'm finally free. And he vanishes into dust. And somewhere out on the sea, somewhere out between the Serpent Isles, the Crimson Viper ghost ship slowly dissolves into nothingness and sails the seas no more. Edbert, seeing the vanishing captain, gets a sudden flash. And I think so too does Cheryl. And I think so too does Vale and Nickel as they still watch transfixed at the scene playing out in the lantern. A young Captain Campion coming to this very chamber and engaging with the then current occupant of the soul cage, winning just as Edbert has just won. But upon his victory, the dawning realization that there is in fact a terrible price to be paid even in victory for as Captain Campion, young Captain Campion in this flashback that Edward see, young Captain Campion having bested his foe starts to feel a piece of his soul being ripped from him to reside forever inside the soul cage. And in a flash of madness, out on the sea, there is Captain Campion on the deck of his own ship, holding the soul cage, raging in, in response to this betrayal. And as he rages and rages at this terrible betrayal that he did not expect, the, the lamp itself gets knocked aside and cracked, its oil spilling out. And there it catches fire, sending the entirety of the crimson fire up into flames burning every man alive. Edbert, here in the lantern, after that understanding, realizes that now, even though he has bested his foe, he, he knows that it's not over, that the price still must be paid. In order to control the lamp, in order to have dominion over the soul cage, one must part 
with a piece of their own soul. And somewhere in the darkness, a goddess laughs. <laughs> there is always a price for power, my sweet Edbert. Now it is time for you to pay that price. Edbert sheathes his sword, looks at Sherilyn, who stares off into the distance, staring at the spot where her own body fell tumbling down the mountainside, shattered. She sees in the distance, Edbert, bursting forth from the snow, scrambling his way to her body, whose dead eyes lock with Edbert's. She sees him, and so too does the real Edbert, as they watch this play out. And the Edbert of the past goes to her body, cradles it close, and begins to say over and over again, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I was just trying to save you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Silence descends on the valley. Only the snow falling gently now in the quiet of the valley. Sherilyn, she turns to Edbert and regards him. Long moments pass. And at that moment, Edbert begins to feel a pull. And he knows that his very soul is being ripped from his body, at least a piece of it. The piece that he must sacrifice in order to control the soul cage, he knows there's nothing he can do to stop it. This is the price of his victory. And he sees it. He sees it now, beginning to pull forth from his own chest. And then he looks at Sherilyn. She, for the first time, the first time since she began haunting him, looks at him with no judgment at all. And Edbert knows that this, this moment is the true trial. He knows that in order to do penance for what he did, accident though it was, he must pay this price. It's all right, Sherilyn. I deserve this. I'll let it go. Here's my question. Having seen what really transpired here, is it possible that Sherilyn, getting her trial, finds Edbert not guilty of her death? Is it possible that she sees what he has maintained all this time, that it was an accident and he was only trying to save her from the necromancer? You know, she's still a ghost. She's still not in her right mind. I think this is unlikely. Does she forgive him? 55%. 44 is a yes and a random event. Event focus. 43. Move toward a thread. <laughs> Move toward a thread. Which thread is it? Four. <gasps> oh my God. Oh my God. The thread <laughs> that we move toward is Sherilyn must be permanently dealt with. Oh my God. Okay, okay, okay. I'm not even gonna roll the active. I know what this means. As Edbert begins to open himself up and allow his soul to be ripped from its body, or at least a piece of it, to forever reside in this soul cage. Sherilyn steps in front of him, and as his soul begins to move out, she puts her hand up with the last of her strength, with the last of her flagging spiritual energy, puts her hand up and presses on his chest until that soul fragment goes back inside his body. Edbert says, What are you doing? What are you doing? I need to pay this price. And Sherilyn, 
speaks, but this time not with the horrified, tortured, undead voice, but with the voice she had in life. And she says, Edbert, I see now the truth for what it is. You have overpaid the price, and I have tormented you for too long. A torment you never deserved. No, no, Sherilyn, let me pay this price, let me. You have atoned enough already, Edbert. I forgive you, and I release you. Outside, in the cavern, Nicola and Vale see this. They've long since stopped their, their fighting. Vale sees this and says, No, no, Sherilyn, no, no. Nicola holds her back from trying to rush towards the lantern. Inside the valley, Sherilyn smiles at him. One last smile and begins to slowly discorporate. Her being, her essence, slowly dissolving into the essence of the soul cage itself there, voluntarily to reside forevermore. And with that, the valley fades, the snow vanishes, and Edbert finds himself back in the cavern. Edbert gets to his feet, looking at the lamp on the pedestal of bones behind him. We saw the old thing. We saw everything. Now it seems, Edbert, that you have earned the right to use the last possible use of the soul cage. Use it wisely. Vale steps forward, staring at the lantern, looking pleadingly into Edward's eyes. Please, use the power to bring her back. You can transform reality. You, you can do anything you want. I beg you, use this power to restore her to life or she will be lost forever. Vale, you saw what happened in there. Do you think that coming back is what Sherilyn would want? If you do, then I swear to you, I will do as you ask. Vale just stares at him. She knows the answer. She blinks away a tear shakes her head, turns away. Nicola leans slumped on his sword scabbard. The Crimson Viper is no more, Nicola. It found its rest when her captain did inside the soul cage. Aye, but I know. And now, I'm not just a captain without a crew, but I'm a man without a purpose. But I don't blame you, Edbert. I told you to do what you had to do, and you did. What matters is that you are free, my friend, from that ghost. I suppose I am. And now I suppose you'll use the soul cage to keep your oath to Uro's Vath. I know that you are a man of your word, Edbert. So I expect that's what you'll do. Edbert kind of looks at him, looks at Vale, looks back at the lantern. Do it, Edbert. There's nothing that the soul cage can do for us now, and he includes Vale in his glance. But you, you have the power. What will you do with it? 
Within his grasp is the power to transform reality before the lantern cracks and is done. Does Edward do what I think he might do right now? 75% chance. 37 is a yes. He does grab the soul cage, the lantern, pulls it off the pile of bones, holds it aloft in his hand. He looks up. Devona, I know you're here. Show yourself. And from behind the barrels, once again, emerges the young girl. She looks at him with a wry smile on her face, her piercing blue-green eyes staring directly into his soul, his intact soul. You have one use of the soul cage, Edward. Unlimited power. What will you do with it? I'll tell you what I'll do with it. He holds up the soul cage directly towards her. I command you, Devona, goddess of the storm, keeper of memories. I command you, Devona, by the power of the soul cage, to release Captain Nicola from his service to you, and never again shadow his steps. Her eyes go wide with anger for just a second, and then they go back to their sardonic sort of look. Even the soul cage cannot wholly dismiss the will of a goddess, Edbert. But so be it. Nicola, you are released. You are as nothing to me. And you, Edbert, pray to other gods that we do not soon meet again and she vanishes. Nicola turns to Edbert. What have you done? Why did you do that? At the beginning of this endeavor, I swore to you that I would help you get the soul cage. But through my actions, I caused you to lose not just it, but your entire crew as well. Your entire life's purpose. Now, my friend, it was the least I could do to try and repay you for everything you've done for me. As he says this, the soul cage itself begins to crumble in his hand until it is nothing but dust. There is a sound, a whooshing sound, as the vortex begins to appear again, this time from above them, and they feel themselves, all three of them, being yanked up from the cavern, up through that strange tunnel one more time, appearing on the island. Thrag is there. The Guardian is there. Wyndham is there. In the distance, the Inquisitor's Leap still anchored out in harbor. But as they turn to look at the drunken ghoul, they can see even now it is being pulled beneath the waves. One last jab of wrath and vengeance from a spurned goddess. Vale looks at Edbert. My purpose here is fulfilled. You have stood on trial before perhaps the only judge that would be appropriate. I hope you appreciate what Sherilyn did for you in there. I hope you understand that without her, the powers of the undead in this realm will only grow faster. I hope you are able to live with that choice, Edbert. She has given you your soul. What you do with it is up to you. I'll do everything in my power to honor her memory. 
They all clamber into the ship's boat and take their leave of the Dead Man's Reef, heading back to the Inquisitor's Leap. The Inquisitor's Leap is a ship without a captain. And Captain Nicola, experienced captain that he is, is a captain without a ship. And so it seems only natural that after a brief introduction to the crew, who are all members of the League of Free Lords, the Pirate League that Nicola himself was once nominally a part of, some of them he's even served with over the years, and they gladly accept his captaincy of the Inquisitor's Leap. And so the Inquisitor's Leap turns away from the Dead Man's Reef and charts a course northward. On the way, they stop at various ports, and at one of those ports, Edbert pens a letter. That letter is given to a runner ship, a very, very fast and swift ship, almost like a mail ship. A month later, the docks of Hundatora are bustling with activity. There are ships in the harbor and boats going back and forth, delivering cargo and crew. And it is into that harbor that the Inquisitor's Leap sails, slowing until finally it casts its anchor over the side. And there on the side of the ship, Edbert stands, looking out at the docks. Vale beside him and Captain Nicola on his other side. I suppose this is where we take our leave, my friend. Aye, Captain. I suppose it is. Edbert turns to the Guardian. This is it, big fella. Nicola is your master now. Make sure you defend him as well as you defended me. Thank you. Nicola nods his thanks. I don't suppose I shall see you again in this life. You never know, Captain. She's a mighty big world out there, but it's been my experience that friends have a way of coming back together. Until that day, my friend. Aye, Captain. Until that day. And as Edbert's boat slowly makes its way towards the docks, there in the distance of the docks he can see a figure that is familiar to him, holding a letter in its hand, the letter that Edbert had sent on ahead. As Simon of Argistan holds the letter in one hand and raises a hand of welcome and greeting in the other. And then, from beside Simon, steps another figure. This figure is also familiar to Edbert, as Arn Kalapunki emerges and also nods a greeting towards Edbert. Edbert, despite himself, breaks into a smile, for upon seeing his old brothers here at the docks of Hundatora, he knows that his journey has truly come to its end. And so too have we come to the end, not just of this episode, but of season three. Thank you all so much for joining me here on this wild ride. It has been my pleasure to provide you this solo roleplay experience. Please, if you do enjoy what I'm doing here, please hit like and subscribe. And if you want to help support us on Patreon, the link for that is below. Also, you can become a member of the channel or buy some of the merchandise on the shop or maybe purchase some things through DriveThruRPG. We have the links for that below. I will be taking a little hiatus from the main show over the next while. However, I have all kinds of very interesting and exciting things coming up. The Sages Library will continue with more frequency. I also have a, a couple of special series that I'm planning to provide for you. So don't worry, there is much, much more to come here on Me, Myself, and I. Thanks again, and we will see you next time on the next season of Me, Myself, and Die.
Okay, okay, I've heard you. Let's roll the dice and see if your question is answered. <laughs> How fitting. Extreme yes. A figure limping along with a peg leg stumbles out of a boat onto an island with a dilapidated lighthouse. As the figure approaches the entrance, the outer doors swing open as though he is expected. The figure moves up the stairs of the lighthouse and arrives at the top, where an inconsolable Urozvath moans in despair, tentacles flailing. The figure stands before him. The strange, otherworldly wizard notices him. You're lucky it only took your leg. The Kraken's demands for favors are normally far greater. The figure steps forward into the light. Thank you for sparing my life, great Urozvath. Tell me, how may I serve? I have only one task for you, Carlos. No matter where he has gone, no matter who he is with, no matter the cost, find the Oathbreaker Edbert, and together we will have our revenge.